Hello, I'm James Hurst. Welcome to an extra edition of BFBS SITREP. A year since the Taliban returned to power in Afghanistan, we get a rare first-hand insight into how the hardline government is operating. Lynn O'Donnell has reported from the country across more than two decades. She flew out of Kabul the day the city fell to the Taliban. In July, she returned for the first time. Her week-long trip ended up lasting just three days because she was detained by armed Taliban officials, forced to record a false confession and then branded a spy. As well as a deeply frightening experience, she says it was also darkly satirical at moments, revealing incompetence and chaos. She told me how it all unfolded, starting from her arrival at Kabul airport. I had a, a valid media visa. I arrived and was stamped through passport control at Kabul airport. I registered at the um, desk that foreigners are um, pointed towards to register their arrival in the country. You hand over a passport photo, you fill in a form. And then the following day, I went to the foreign ministry, as I knew I was required to do, to register my presence as a, as a visiting foreign correspondent. I went there and I met with the spokesman. He calls himself Abdul Kaha Bolki, which is not his real name. He's a citizen of New Zealand. He has family living safe in New Zealand. And he's, he sat there and he threatened my life. He told me that I wasn't a journalist. He said that the um, intelligence agency of the Taliban would ask me to leave the country because they did not recognise me as a journalist. And he named specific stories that they were uncomfortable with or unhappy with, told me that I'd made them up, that my sources didn't exist. Uh, so that was, you know, me doing the right thing, going to the foreign ministry to register and being told, being abused and being threatened, having my life threatened by the spokesman and being told that I would be asked to leave the country. The following day, the intelligence agency uh, contacted me and they demanded an immediate, uh, urgent face-to-face -face meeting to discuss what they called my crimes. I told them I knew that they were going to ask me to leave and so I was, I'd booked a flight and I was preparing to depart did we really have to go through this? I was told by a man called um, Ahmad Zahil that if I didn't have a face-to-face -face meeting with him, uh, that he would ensure that all border points were closed to me and I would not be allowed to leave the country. So you went to that meeting? I said to them, okay, I knew at this time uh, with this threat um, that I wasn't going to be able to get away with not having this meeting and just leaving. Uh, so I invited him to come to my guest house, which he did with um, uh, three other people, one of whom was armed. And um, before this, I set up a WhatsApp group with Australian diplomats who were based in Doha now, as most uh, Western missions focused on Afghanistan are, as embassies remain closed. We set up the WhatsApp group and included my friend and colleague Masoud Husseini, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer I worked with for more than a decade and I used um, live location tracking and they didn't take my phone off me. They took me away to um, the headquarters of the intelligence agency, which they now call the General Directorate of Intelligence, the GDI. And um, I was able to live text it with the people on this WhatsApp group. They kept me there for more than four hours. They shouted at me, berated me, uh, told me that I had made 
up my stories, um, two in particular with the with a theme of sex that they took particular exception to. One was about Taliban practices of forced marriage um, of young women to their fighters, uh, which is a form of sex slavery by any definition um, that I wrote in July last year and one I wrote um, in February about LGBTQ people um, being desperately afraid for their lives in hiding and being evacuated to some countries that support um, their, their evacuation. So they, I was told there are no gays in Afghanistan. I'm not a journalist. I make everything up. And I was um, told that if I didn't make a public confession that I would be jailed. And so what did you do? I made a public confession. <laughs> I was like, okay. First I said, oh, sorry. And they said, no, that's not good enough. And then it was like, I'm really, really sorry. And I said, no. So then they dictated. I got out my notebook and a pen and I, dictated, I, I, I wrote down as they dictated what it was that they wanted me to say. They checked it with their boss who was on the phone with them. They tried to tell me the boss was a woman and then put the boss on speakerphone not a woman. And um, I uh, tweeted, I put what they told me to put onto a tweet. Their boss didn't like it for some reason, even though he had approved it initially. So I deleted it. They edited it. I don't know what they did. I didn't, I wasn't paying attention or really cared at that stage and um, retweeted it. And before, you know, before I even got to this point, I said, look, guys, if you, if you make me do this, in all sincerity, I have to tell you, you are going to look silly. They had a debate over the meaning of the word silly, decided that they wouldn't and made me do it anyway. And then after the tweets had been sent, they made me record video recorded on an iPhone, a, um, a confession that I am not a journalist. I make everything up. I have no sources. I don't know anything about Afghanistan, the people or the culture or the country, and that I hadn't been coerced into making this confession. And as I said those last words, I took my headscarf off because, of course, I was in a, a, you know, wearing a hijab and a chad, you know, full-length chador. I took the headscarf off my head, tied it around my neck, held it up like a noose and said, and I haven't been conversed, coerced into making this confession. We all had a laugh and we did it again. You say you all had a laugh. It, it, it sounds like you were feeling relatively comfortable through this. Or no, was that not just at all. distance? No, no, not for a second. I didn't feel comfortable for a second. It was a, it was, um, a totally unpredictable experience with men who. Um, project their power through brutality and violence and who have a history of taking uh, foreigners uh, hostage and keeping them for leverage for international concessions. And it's only a couple of months ago that five Brits were released from prison. They've still got an American um, who they've had for two and a half years and have been trying to talk the Americans into releasing a drug dealer who's serving a life sentence in a New York prison in exchange for this guy. So, you know, I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't afraid or uncertain or in a trepidatious, unpredictable situation because that's exactly where I was. But it was also darkly, satirically comic because they are incompetent and stupid and they take instruction from above, from sinister 
um, people who say that they are experts, for instance, in English and, and who were clearly giving them instructions on what to do with me and to me. And um, I, so no, it, it, I wasn't comfortable for a second, but I also was pushing the boundaries of what I could say and do with these guys who spent more than an hour just shouting at me. And they stood up and they surrounded me when they, when they said, you either make a public confession or you go to jail. All of this was possible. It was possible that I would never be seen again, that I would be shot, whatever, anything was possible. But what am I going to do? Cower in a corner? Wrong girl. So you decided to stand up for yourself? Well, yeah, I just do that naturally. <laughs> but it all started very strangely. I keep my passport in a pink plastic Hello Kitty cover. And when I handed it over to him, he took it out of the cover, treated it with contempt, threw them on the table, blah, blah. In the car, the up-armoured B6 in which I was taken to the NDS, former NDS headquarters, he put it very delicately back into the Hello Kitty cover and gave it back to me. And I looked at him and I said, have you got children? And he said, yes. And I asked him, girls or boys and how many? And he took his phone out of his pocket and started showing me photographs of his daughters. And then in the middle of this, um, you know, shouted interrogation style exchange or, you know, experience, this other guy who didn't give me his name, who told me there are no gays in Afghanistan and why do you call us extremists, hello, um, uh, he said to me, out of the blue, apropos of nothing, I like cats too. And I, I just sort of looked at him and, and thought he must have been looking at my Instagram because where else are you going to find out I've got cats? And so I started talking to him about cats and then he kind of realised that that was an inappropriate topic of conversation while I was being threatened and interrogated and stopped talking about them. It was all really very strange, very Kafka-esque and unpleasant and telling. Did it tell you anything that you felt you didn't already know about the Taliban? Well, we've kind of been making assumptions, haven't we, for um, 20 years based on the brutality, the murders, the suicide bombings, the drug dealing, the looting of minerals um, uh, and the uh, what happened with the administration of Donald Trump and this disingenuous uh, negotiation that led to the, um, the drawdown agreement. Um, so what this told me was just how sinister and um, incompetent and fearful this regime is. I am not convinced that this is sustainable because millions of people are hungry and jobless and penniless. It was no, you know, utopia under the Republic. We know that Afghanistan was one of the most corrupt um, countries in the world and the people were amongst the poorest before the 15th of August last year. Now it's just much worse. But now there's an overlay of fear. All of these, all that these people have to um, ensure that their authority is, uh, that they have authority 
is violence and brutality, and that's what I witnessed. Not competence, not a desire to be understood or to ensure that the people of the country are safe, secure, fed, have jobs, can afford to put the lights on in their homes. It's only fear and power that they're interested in. So how did this whole, as you say, dark satire come to an end? Well, I, I said to them before they started doing the video, is that, is, is that it? Um, you're going to take me back to my guest house now? They said, no, no, you've got, you know, I've got Mr. Zahil sitting on, sitting on a sofa with his head on his forehead saying, you, you, you know, I've been under such pressure. You couldn't understand the pressure that I'm under. I'm like, yeah, okay, that's nice to know. Thank you for sharing. Are you going to take me back to my guest house now? And um, I did the the video confession, take one, take two, and then they took me outside, put me back in the B6 and drove me back to my guest house. They made me stand at the gate of the guest house with a gunman standing beside me while the manager was called. The manager came I went inside, he went outside, and then 15 minutes later knocked on my door and told me what had happened to him. And he said they told him that they could shut him down any time. So there's that threat again, that fear, that brutality, um, which, you know, there's no, there's no mutual respect in that. It is just um, uh, forcing people to do as you say, other, you know, otherwise the consequences are too difficult to bear. And then um, the following day, I went out to dinner that evening. I had a dinner engagement. And the following day, I had breakfast at my guest house. A friend came to visit me and then took me to the airport and I left. Now, um, the guys who interrogated me and held me told me, now that it's all over, you can stay. You're welcome to stay. You know, you want to do some reporting, we'll help you do it. I said, okay, let's go to the Panshire. You know, the Panshire has been a bit of a cauldron in recent months of fighting because Panshiri people are historically resistant to Taliban rule and there have been reports of extremely brutal retaliations uh, against Panshiri people. No, we couldn't go there. Okay, what about Balkhab? There's a, um, a resources war going on in Balkhab that has taken on an, an ethnic dimension. No, it doesn't take too long to get there. I said, that's, that's a two-day drive. That's up in the, in the north on the border. I said, well, let's get a helicopter. He said, no, we don't have access to helicopters. And I said, okay, so you've said that you'll help me report, but really you're not going to. And that was the end of that discussion. Once I left, Bulky, the man who had threatened to have me killed, the New Zealand citizen, how does that happen, um, uh, tweeted that I had left of my own accord, uh, that um, I had uh, voluntarily confessed that I made up my stories and my sources didn't exist and they were glad to see the back of me. Two days later, the spokesman for the Taliban overall, whose name is Zabiullah Mujahid, tweeted that I was a spy, that I had crept into Afghanistan masquerading as a journalist, that I had been in hiding, that they had hunted me down and found me, forced me to confess, which I had, and then they had expelled me from the country and I would never be permitted to return. Now, by branding me a spy, they also have carte blanche then to uh, round up people who were associated with me and call them spies. And they did just that. Detained my driver, who was an old friend who worked for me for many years when I was a bureau chief for one of the big news agencies in Kabul. 
They held him for three days. They beat him up. They deprived him of sleep and they kept his car and his phone. Um, I texted um, the guys who had helped me, including the New Zealander, and asked if they would please return his car and his phone. Um, Whether I had any influence or not, uh, I don't know, but they did that. Um, But he had a day job and he's lost that. Two other people who invited me to see, go and visit them were also detained and interrogated about their whole lives, their existence, and a little bit about me. Why did they meet me? So, you know, it's become dangerous to be associated with foreign correspondents. Um, A friend of mine who is a Pakistani journalist working for an Indian TV network was detained last week, held overnight, beaten up. His driver and translator had the same experience as my driver, but they've come out with broken ribs and broken bones and um, in need of serious medical treatment. After more than 20 years reporting on Afghanistan, do you think you will ever go back to the country? Well, I think I'd be foolhardy to go back while the Taliban in its current incarnation is there, while people like um, Bolki, the New Zealander I mentioned, are threatening my life. Um, I think that uh, I will go back and that it's just a matter of time. Um, as I said, their days are numbered. The only question really is what, what is the number? This is unsustainable. Lynn O'Donnell, thank you. This is Zitrap. Zitrap.